Let's do one more. This one's titled, I don't have enough good words. Exclamation point five stars. Amy Marie 18. So wonderful. Thank you guys for taking this on. That was good. That was good, Steve. So thanks for leaving that review. You guys, please, it would help us so much if you would leave a rating and or review wherever you listen to this podcast. But I think there is goodness in her that she had. Alan's back with the booze. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> he just dropped off the gin at the front door. <laughs> From Milieu Media Group, this is Fun Parts. An exploration of sexuality and spirituality for anyone who's curious or convinced there must be more. With your hosts, Becky Patton, Latifa Alatas, Ashley Lusink, Steve Weens, and me, Luke Bronner. So I actually heard from somebody yesterday who texted me randomly, not even knowing that we were taping fun parts again, just saying how meaningful listening to season one and two has been. And she is the parent of teens and preteens. I asked, I said, Hey, do you have any questions? We're taping. And she said, yeah, actually I do. Being a parent of a teen and preteen, I'm very aware that kids and teens are more open than ever before to the idea of gender and sexual orientation being fluid. I hear regularly about this friend or that friend who's bisexual. How do we have conversations about these topics with our kids and honor their own emerging sexuality? Hmm. I'm not a parent, but I mean, I'm having those conversations with friends of mine in their twenties, thirties and forties who are still kind of wrestling through how to identify how to be public if they want to be public. And I know that tenderness in those conversations is imperative, but I have thought to myself, like, it would probably be really overwhelming to know that there is just like an array of possibilities. And then I'm wondering if it feels harder now to be a kid in some ways, like the benefit would be that there's possibility and the world is maybe more open to not all the world, but maybe some of the world's more open to who you're attracted to, but also like when you're already feeling confused, like I had a dream about a a girlfriend in junior high making out with her and I woke up and I was so ashamed. I immediately asked to go home because I thought, well, that dream was evil and sinful and I need to like get away from that. But really I was just, my hormones were starting to like come out. I was in puberty and I was attached to this friend of mine who I felt deeply safe with. And, you know, I had a dream about her, you know, that's really not a big deal at all, but because of how I grew up, it felt terrible and I just felt like bathed in shame. So I hope that kids right now don't feel ashamed for their attractions, but then how do they actually navigate like coming out? I mean, this would actually be great to have some people on the microphone who've had to do this, but even knowing that identity and gender is fluid, like, can that be fluid over the course of time? You know, I would imagine there'd be some pressure to be like, I don't want to pigeonhole myself, (laughs) you know? Yeah. So I don't know. What do you guys think about that? The one thing I'm going to say, just being early in this journey, is I remember having a moment with my little, as I was holding her and just speaking, thinking through like just life and my wants and hopes for her. And I was like, gosh, I wonder if, you know, will she get married someday? And I want to like leave that open. 
And I was like, just thinking about that person that she would marry. And I was like, him or her, just starting now to even be like, whatever that looks like for her, we will embrace that. And doing the work of that now for me, and even having journeyed through that with my ex-husband and his process too, but it's like, this is new. This is a new season of that with this little person that I love and care for. So that's something like, I just feel like that's the limited voice I have at this is like, how do I start this now for when she is a preteen and we're having those types of conversations. So I'm doing my work now along the way. I find that work to be really, I mean, that's of interest to me too. Like I, you know, I'm a part of a community with lots of the folks in our community are queer in some way. And the learning curve as someone who grew up in purity culture and who grew up in a conservative part of the country and whatever, you know, like I guess just accepting that like sometimes I'm going to say the wrong thing or sometimes I'm going to stumble over my words or sometimes there's going to be things I don't understand. I have spent 40 plus years now thinking in a particular way. And so to begin to make space in my mind for the idea that like there are lots of expressions of gender, there are lots of expressions of sexuality that simply because I cannot relate to them personally doesn't make them not valid. Simply because I can't understand them, it doesn't make them not valid. And the onus is not on the person to sort of bend to my comfort. It's on me to learn. It's on me to say like, it's my fault if I say something wrong and I need to improve on that. I need to like work through that and learn a new way of thinking. And I think that's really hard, especially for folks who, you know, grew up a particular way to untie those knots. It's a challenge that I'm sort of actively working through all the time right now. I think that there's something in culture and I felt it in the church or sometimes like when I'm observing people discussing parenting and not everyone, but that kind of like kids don't know their kids. And the reason why they don't know is because they haven't been on the, the planet long enough. And we as adults just know better because we have experience. So they need our help setting boundaries and knowing what their options are and, you know, kind of all those things. And I think that that's like at the core it's saying, I don't trust my kid to know what is best for them in regards to their attraction or what their body needs. We're not talking about like, if your kid only wants to eat Sour Patch Kids at every meal. Yeah. That's like not, it's not a healthy choice, like for their but body. Perfectly reasonable but and perfectly understandable. Reasonable. That I do understand. <laughs> so like, I understand like children and kids need the benefit of the wisdom of the elders around them to grow and be healthy but I guess what we're talking about is like, where's the line? Where's the delineation of, wait, what you're telling me about your body and your experience and your heart and your emotion, there's nothing infantile about that. How do we protect that? Because I hope if I ever have children one day that I can hear them and trust them and not like bend to something that isn't going to serve them, but like not impose my bias on them, especially in regards to sexuality and identity. But that can feel really scary. So, I mean, I feel like I'm talking a lot for not being a parent. So I would love those of you that have children to pipe up. I just want to state the fact that what the people we're actually talking to, we hope we're talking to at least, are the parents. Not necessarily. We're not trying to answer questions about as people are questioning that. We're trying to be a resource for parents as they're in this. So I think there are no fair assumptions that can Mm -hmm. be made about what it's like to parent a non-binary child, a queer child, a trans child. And there are no universal patterns. Every child is different. Mm -hmm. Every parent is different. 
There is no one way to do this. That's my experience. Because some kids are very chatty about it, want to talk about it. Some kids do not want to talk about it. And it's like, from your perspective as a parent, it might seem so obvious (laughs) that they need to talk about it and they need to start naming some things. But if that child isn't ready, doesn't want to talk about it, then, you know, that's consent. Mm. You don't force that conversation. A parent needs to regulate their own anxiety level about what's happening and what's not happening. That's an inside job, as Latifah often says. And so given all of those realities, one of the things that I think is really important to say to a child is no one gets to say who you are other than you. Mm. No one gets to say, because one of the things that's great about the current milieu of kids are talking about gender fluidity and I'm gay, I'm bi, and will you be my girlfriend? Will you be my boyfriend? That's kind of good. They're not suppressing things. On the other hand, you can imagine a seventh grader coming up to another seventh grader and saying, you're gay. I know you are. And that seventh grader saying, oh, I guess I must be. Mm. Now that's not okay. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm not. So the parent's role is to also help a kid regulate their own emerging self-identity with their hormone monsters that are raging. (laughs) So I have a lot of energy for this. And a parent really, I want to repeat this, a parent really needs to do the work of regulating their own anxiety about the speed with which the conversations happen. Because you start, you maybe you're thinking about, Oh, hormone blockers at a certain age. And when do I start that? And when do I not start that? And what if I'm too late? And, you know, there's just so many things to talk about and think about. But I want to, even as I'm saying all that, like I can feel the fear and anxiety raise. But I want to also say, there's nothing to fear here. There's nothing to fear here. We love our kids imperfectly. We love our kids and we'll do things imperfectly. But then we'll apologize to our kids and we'll make repairs with our kids and we'll ask for further consent about further conversations and we'll reach out to friends who are good, who we know can help our kids in ways that we can't because we parents, single parents, you know, multiple parents, listen, you're not enough for your kid. You're just not. You're not. And that's okay. That's freeing. Nothing to fear there. That should be a great message. That should be great news. That's good. But when you think you're the only, you have to navigate your child through every single troubled waters alone, man, I don't want that pressure. Steve, when you talk about it's the parents' work to self-regulate their own anxiety and their fear, do you have specific advice or things that you've used as you've parented your kids to help you self-regulate? Like, I'm thinking about the parent who might be uncomfortable even with the topic of being gay and their child comes to them and says, you know, I think I like Susie, you know, what would you say to that parent? Because I'm a pastor that is open and affirming publicly, there are so many parents of teenagers, but also parents of adults that are saying, what do I do? Oh my goodness. My child, we've always known but my child just came out to me, adult job. What do I do? Can we meet? So one of the things is like pursue some help, you know, talk to someone who has less anxiety than you do. That's a great way of saying it. (laughs) About it. That's number one. 
Like you don't have to read seven books tonight in order to be comfortable talking to your child. Remember, like you're, whether your child is gay, trans, bi, asexual, non-binary, you love your child. And that love transcends any of those categories. And that's what I would say to a parent, like settle that in your own mind. Please settle that for the sake of the health of your own kid. Settle that no matter what, no matter what you are loved. You belong in this family. You gotta, and I know that's like, how do you do that? Well, reach out to someone who's less anxious than you. Maybe, you know, if you're in a Christian kind of setting and you're just, oh, I don't know how to reconcile this biblically, meet with a pastor who's done that work. Doesn't have to be a pastor, but if you feel comfortable, meet with a pastor who you respect who's done that work and just hear their process. Hear how they came to accept those realities. Steve, I think you're spot on because what's getting triggered for the parent is their own anxiety. And I want to say a lot of parents are going, oh, what did I do wrong? Yes. And I'm like, first and foremost, I want to say, wait a minute. If that's your first question, okay, but pause for just a minute because you're looking at this child and you just had this image. You're holding your baby. You're looking at them. You're thinking about who are they going to be. Notice that, oh, you didn't have the thought of gender identity in that equation, but it was always there resting. Regardless of whether or not you ever asked the question, the question was there. And so I think for some parents, this is not about you doing something right or doing something wrong. This child is a beautiful human being that has already come into this world with things that you were mystery that you didn't know. And there's no way, you, they don't come with a manual. There's no way, and some of this we live in a society that has taught us how to hide really well. And so our children have learned that as well. And part of it is I think that asking somebody who's explored the topic a little bit more is like, can you come and can you put on your learner ears? Can you hold your heart that is struggling? And maybe maybe it even feels like it's breaking in certain ways. And yet, can you hold the possibility that there's something about your child that you don't know and you get to explore. And I think a key, especially during teenage years, is parents need to increase their capacity to be curious about who this child is because who they are on Tuesday is not who they'll be on Thursday. I know I've shared this information before, but for boys, when they are going through puberty, if testosterone were beer, before puberty, they have about eight ounces of it surging through their body every day. During puberty, they have the equivalent of about two gallons coursing through their bodies. So of course they're confused. Your children know better than you do about some of the stuff that's going on inside of them, but they have 12-year-old wisdom. They have 14-year-old wisdom. And yes, they need, they need gentle guardrails on either side of them. And I want to say one of those guardrails is their parents, but the other guardrail needs to be the community. Yes. There was a Mother's Day that my daughter, she was a blogger for a while, and there's this Mother's Day that she wrote this beautiful blog post to the mothers who have helped to raise me. Mm. And she called out, this person had given her this, this person had given her this, and they were all friends of mine. And I felt that moment of, oh, wait a minute, I didn't give her all this. And I had just a tinge of jealousy, but I made space for it. And there's that moment of going, oh, thank God. God, she got all these things from other people. It wasn't me. 
At the risk of sounding too forceful or bold, I would say that if I had a child that came out to me, the last thing I would do is force them to stay in a community where that identity is not supported. Amen. Because you are going to continually re-traumatize your child for what? Yeah. It's for probably maybe your anxiety. Because I, I have heard people say to me, you know, well, I would never like wish for my child to be queer because their life will just be harder. Hmm. Well, that's like saying I would never wish that black boys would be born because their life will just be harder because we know statistically that black men have a much harder time in America. That's why I've heard people say that they're against biracial marriage because that child is going to have potentially a harder time for the color of their skin. And what I would say to that is like all of these humans are humans and they're yes. wonderful and they are worthy and none of them are more worthy than another based on skin or based on gender identity or sexual preference. And, you know, I don't have a child yet. I, I would hope to have one one day. And it's like, I don't care who they love. I just hope they get to love someone and be loved by someone or someone's like, that's what I care about. But I want to say that's something you're carrying inside of you. Yeah. So when you, and I, I think for a lot of parents, especially generationally, and I think 20 years from now, it may be different. We mm -hmm. don't know, but they didn't have that openness when they held that child. And so I want to say, even in holding that child, there is an imprint that's going on of a pattern that's of what this world will look like, what the future will look like. That's what I was thinking about too, is like the script. It's like, I'm going to lay my script on you. And wow. that's what I expect for your life. Cause you know, I think about mine, I'm like, Oh, it worked out so well for me, but I mean, you know, like the predictable pattern. And so to start to open that up, I think that's something for myself. I've been as thinking a parent, through. as a parent, yeah. we have to have a script that is expansive yeah. in order to give a child a script that is expansive. I think parents do experience an element of grief and fear. But I also think that there's this, we haven't given permission to parents to just become the learners then because suddenly they are put in the student seat because the child is kind of driving. And as a parent who's had two children get their driver's license, there is an element of that that's terrifying when you put your child behind the, the wheel, but they need you in that passenger seat to be with them. And they have to learn. I mean, I will never forget my daughter high-centered our Jeep on top of a snowbank. And I was like, wait, wait, what were you thinking? And she goes, I forgot which one was the brake. And it's like, of course she forgot because she doesn't have muscle memory for that. And so I think that there's something that when parents feel the grief, they need somebody to feel the grief with, but it's not their child. It's not their yeah. child's responsibility to that hold is, the grief with them. That is excellent, Becky. And that is the adult. No matter what the, the I, I don't care what it is. Yeah. Because we are making the child responsible for us, and that is not a child's responsibility. And I'm sorry, I'm getting a little angry about that. I would just want a yes and amen. Because to I, that. because I think children, what they need more than anything, is they need to see, oh, a parent that is resourced enough to go find the help they need will help model for them that when they need help, they can ask for help. You would ask for help if you have a plumbing issue, probably, you, you know, in your oh, house, I would 100%. you would ask for help if you had a computer issue in your house and you didn't know what to do. So why, why are we so afraid to ask for help in these much more important arenas? I want to say two things that seem obvious maybe to those of us around this table, but I want to burst a couple of myths about 
number one, like I remember now this was 25 years ago. I'm sitting in premarital counseling and I shared a little bit of our family of origin dynamic, which includes among other things, patterns of passive father, dominant mother. And so the therapist asked Mary to leave the room and then pointedly asked me, you know, is there something you want to tell me? You know? And I was like, I don't know. Is there something you want to tell me? Based on your family of origin, there's a high likelihood that you are gay. And I just want to, before you get married, I just want to make sure that you're being honest about with Mary, with yourself. So myth number one, a passive father and an overdominant mother causes your child to be gay. Can we climb out of that lie? Please. Please. That is gross. It's very I know gross. it is, isn't it? It makes me angry but, that a therapist would do that. But that... I'm going to say in a certain generation was the dominant belief in Christianity, I think. Maybe even even beyond. I want to say that's actually a lot of what the reparative therapy has used as their model, which is so damaging in my limited experience with some of the men that I work with. It has created more damage for them to rebuild their relationships with their parents. Yeah. And that is so sad to me. Yeah. And it makes parents feel, what's wrong with me? What did I do wrong? And that's just not ever a productive question, I don't think. Maybe sometimes in some arenas, but not in this one. Okay, that's myth number one. The second myth is that you are either gay or straight, or you are either male or female. If you can think about, I think parents, if you can think about both of those things as spectrums, orientation and gender identity. If you see those as spectrums, even think about yourself. Like I would, let's say if you joked last night, 10% gay, 9% straight, I'm probably the same. You know, like I have some kind of attraction for men that doesn't feel sexual to me, but that does feel like more than friendship or something. And I feel like when I can express that, I I just feel more integrated with myself. Yeah. I almost think like a better way for me to describe it, because I actually texted Luke about that because I didn't want to make a joke. Right. And I think a better way to articulate it is 10% curious. Mm, and I like that. 90%, you know, into dudes. And and only cuz I just don't want to disrespect, yes. you know, anybody and that's that's why I texted you. Yeah. So if parents, if you can think about those two things as spectrums versus either ors, I really do think that's going to help you understand your child that might be non-binary, might be questioning, might be curious, because they probably don't know either. Like most of the time, my experience, now some kids just know. Ever Mm -hmm. since they were two years old, they know. Remember when I said every kid is different, every child, you know, that is true. But don't assume that that's true about your child, that they absolutely know. They might not. They just are curious and they don't know. And so they, and they need to do their own exploring too, which may or may not involve you. (laughs) And that's painful. I was thinking about this earlier that that like, it's like you were raised It's uh, for myself. It's like I was raised believing and being taught that there are, we'll say two stars in the sky. And I believed that wholeheartedly because there was nothing to disprove the theory until I saw through a telescope. And I was like, Oh my God, like there is, there's and you in, saw there Star are Wars. Infinite, and, and there infinite are two stars over Tatooine, and then that's settled it. I think we're saying different things. <laughs> but when I when I realized that like how very expansive the universe is, I can never go back to believing there are only two stars. That's and good. and I think that like the generations behind us, behind me, 
are just far more aware of the expansiveness of the universe, the expansiveness of humanity. And so the work is not for me to convince them or to fit all of that expansiveness into my understanding of this two-star universe. It is for me to expand my mind and to meet them and to never come back to the understanding that I currently have. So when your universe expanded and you suddenly saw the vastness, Luke, mm -hmm. you said you don't want to go back. I think parents, there can be a grief that goes with that. Like, oh my gosh, I have operated with just this small picture my whole life. And I've heard parents even say, what has my life been for? I haven't even had the capacity to think this way. And they feel like everything that they've poured their life into, and I want to say, especially in the church, I've had parents that have said this, is, wait, now I don't believe what I used to believe. Because I've been going this one way, and I think that acknowledging the grief doesn't mean that what you've pursued before didn't have purpose. It did. The way you saw the universe before, that had purpose until it no longer did. And you had the wisdom to be able to go, oh, can I open myself up to more? And I think that's just absolutely spot on one of the best illustrations for this. I think one of the rubs is that I agree with you, Luke, that like millennials, people that come after millennials, I don't know what they're called right now. Zoomers. Zoomers. That's hilarious because of COVID. Seriously? Um, That's Gen Z boomers, basically. Yeah. Zoomers. Yeah. Wow. I, I agree that there seems to be generationally, culturally more openness to the idea of gender fluidity and identity preference. But like when I made my pride post and I saw the huge blowback for somebody that is like, I'm not famous. I'm not a celebrity. I'm like, you know, have a very average presence. I would say on social media, like I don't dedicate a lot of time to it to see it like repost repost. It is touching something. It is touching an open wound in the church. Cause there is so much anger and so much confusion. And I just, I'm trying to like think about those parents that are in those communities where it's like, if you are gay or anything other, you know, than straight, basically that is a one way ticket to a hotter, fierier hell, you know? And I'm trying to imagine what would that would be like to then have a child. I mean, I think you would have to shift if you want to stay in relationship with your child or that child would be very closeted and very hidden. And we've been talking this season about what are the repercussions of being hidden and being suppressed. And, you know, that leads to raw, that leads to non-generative life. And, you know, I want to say too, that like there is a third myth. And the third myth is that if you are gay, you are most likely or hundred percent sexually abused. That is a myth I have heard a yes. lot. And that is very, very untrue. <laughs> and like, I could say that is provable and that everybody who is sexually abused is not hundred percent gay. A lot of people are straight who are abused. And also I have a lot of gay friends who were never abused and had very positive sexual experiences or have had no sexual experiences and still identify as gay. So I just want to say that that is another myth. So if your child does come to you, you don't have to have a fear right away that they've been hurt or harmed in that way. And I think that's an important thing to add. I agree. Thank you for that. Yeah. And can we just say... Those are our three myths that we came up with today. There may be other yeah, I'm myths sure there's as well. Plenty more. So I just want to make sure that we, we aren't the authorities on myths, but yeah. I think those are three really important ones and I'm glad we, we can say them out loud. Yeah. The other thing I would say is that like with regard to 
we were talking earlier about, you know, if your kid's coming out to you, if your kid's asking questions, whatever, I think that children maybe innately, or, or maybe this is just the way that we position ourselves as we get older, tend to think of their parents, or at least parents tend to think of themselves as the source of answers. Mm. And I think one of the greatest gifts that you could give your kid is to be like, oh, I don't know the answer to that. Let's, I'm, it's, it's an opportunity for more of, we, we, we use this phrase a lot, the intimate withness. It's a thing where you get to say with your kid, like, well, let's figure that out together. Like, let, let, I'm going to walk with you through that, whatever it looks like. You don't have to lead me, but I may not be able to lead you either. We're just going to go through it together. We're going to figure out what that means together. Whatever it is, it's good. This has been one of the most interesting lessons of midlife for me is to realize, like, I remember my parents at this age and thinking they knew a lot more than I do now, you know, and realizing like they were totally winging it my entire life. They've been winging it and they're probably still winging it. You know, like that's a revelation. I wish that kids could just sort of know that I don't want them to not have the security of feeling like there's a source, but, but I also don't want them to have the heartbreak of realizing like there's not someone who can give you definitive answers. This is all just a big mysterious journey that we're on. And so let's just be on it together, you know? When I've thought about myself or somebody else I love and how many times we've changed our minds on things, it's like, you just don't know Mm -hmm. what you don't know until you know it. And that's okay. And my guess is most people I know in my life, I have not changed belief or theological beliefs, spiritual beliefs, sexual beliefs until I was pressed to, because it's kind of uncomfortable to change your framework you know, it's very disruptive to blow out a wall in your house and remodel the kitchen or add a room or it's really disruptive. And but, messy. And messy. And you don't yeah. know what you're going to find in the walls. Yeah. But them. once you do the work, you, your house is expanded, you know, and that feels really good once it's done. But it just takes time and it takes help. And it takes, you know, like you said, hiring the plumbers, hiring the people, the experts, that you are not to do the areas that you have no idea how to, how to fix or navigate. And so, yeah, I, I guess I'm, I'm thinking about my friend. I'm thinking about my friend who texted me and I think she's probably doing a great job. I mean, honestly, the, the way I know that she loves her kids and she's probably just loving them. And my guess is, you know, at least what I would do if, if my kid came to me with something that I felt overwhelmed by and I didn't know, I would just say like, Hey, this is new for me, but I know I love you. And let's go find some people. Let's go find some community where they've already been doing this. I'm realizing how much Instagram is helping me with different resources because there's just such a plethora. But there's an account I just want to do a plug for, which is Sex Positive Families. And it's amazing to follow her and just what she's created and resources and talking through puberty with your kids. But I love, Luke, to your point as far as like, let's figure this out together. And she presents a lot of amazing information for that. And then also like different books and different things. So it's, I think about, we at this table have finite resources within what we're doing, but there is so much available now because the need is there. And so I would just say to check out, yeah, sex positive families. And there's just some really great things. And it's helped, I think, even for me just start to rewire language for myself too, in preparation for future conversations. That's so good, Ashley. Thanks for that. And you're such a learner. You're always pushing stuff out to us in such a helpful way. Oh yeah, that's so great. And I I guess what I'm feeling in my soul right now is like the grief, the parent who wants to do this so well and wants it so right, 
but is feeling grief and is feeling like I screwed up or, you know, can't break out of the myths or all those things that you're feeling. It's okay. It's okay. You're not alone. You're not defective for feeling any of that stuff. You didn't fail. As you a didn't parent. fail. And you're not failing now. You're just learning. You're learning and it's hard. It's so hard, but don't add to your list. I should have done this better five years ago. Like, I love what you said, Latifah. You know, we don't know something until we know it. We don't learn something until we have to. And we generally resist. Yes. We generally resist until it has to happen. One thing I just want to say with that, too, is one piece of inner job, inside, inside job, job work <laughs> that I've been trying to do more lately is self-forgiveness. Yeah. And sitting with, like, my past selves and even, like, the week before self of how I might have handled a situation of like, oh, I would have, even just a week later, would have done that a little bit differently, but I'm seeing myself and can I forgive myself for, I did the best I could in that moment. And so I just think there's an element of that also of like, we do the best we can with what we have, then can we forgive ourselves and continue to move forward? And I just have to say, like, I'm very much so in the midst of that. That's a continual learning. Well, and apologizing, like, yes, I know with Lucas and I, what has built more trust isn't that we haven't had any conflict or misunderstanding or sideways words, but it's that when those things happen, the true coming to each other with like real remorse of the like expression of, I really hurt you. I'm grieved over hurting you. Like, can you forgive me? And like, how can we talk about this in the future? That's actually what has built trust between us. I mean, the good memories are great and I'm glad for those too. I mean, that really helps, but what really deepens the well is when mistakes are made and we keep our accounts short. We keep our ledger short between the two of us. And so, I mean, imagine doing that. Imagine building that with your kid. That sounds amazing. So you don't have to act perfectly and you don't have to always have the perfect response. It's just when you don't and you say something hurtful, the acknowledgement and the sharing of that grief and remorse of the behavior and then the asking for forgiveness. I mean, well, and I think not requiring your own understanding for that. Like, mm-hmm. I think of moments where, Sometimes you have to just trust someone that you hurt them. You have to trust mm-hmm. them. Even if you're like, I, I can think of so many times early in marriage that I tried to convince my wife that what I said to her that hurt her shouldn't have hurt her, <laughs> yeah. thinking that would make the pain go away. Oh, wow. And it's like, no, yeah. that's not how it works. Sometimes you just have to trust that like the thing you did hurt them, whether you understand why it hurt them or not. Or if you intended to or not. Or, yeah. Intentions are irrelevant. <laughs> I mean, yes. truly. like That is so well said. You believed her and she needed to be believed. Yeah. And that's once you believe someone, trust is built. That I don't know if this is true for you, Steve, but like as a three, that's a big thing for me is like how I'm perceived, especially by the people who through whom I find my value is vital. And so it's always like I, I tell her all the time, like I'm fine with I'll make a million mistakes. I'm fine with that. That doesn't bother me. What bothers me is that you don't know that it was an accident. You don't know that I was trying my best not to, you know. And mm-hmm. I think that same sort of, I mean, some of that I think is just male ego. Some of that is, uh, you know, privilege that is expressing itself in really awful ways. But I am constantly working to learn that my need for validation, my need for being understood in that moment is not as important as the damage that I have done. That damage has to be more important to me. And so I think that's exactly the case in relationships with people who are already doing the complicated work of 
exploring and owning and celebrating who they are inside. When we cause damage, we have to just own it. And even if we can't understand it, we have to just own it. Luke, I love what you just said. So many times we have these knowing glances between us. Yes, yes, yes. When you can learn, if you're given to that kind of reaction, when you can learn what that defensive feeling feels like, when you can learn to recognize that if someone's telling you something, you hurt me when you did that. And then you feel that thing rise up in you that wants to defend, that wants to say, no, 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 you don't understand. You misunderstood. I, I, I didn't, I wasn't trying to do that. When you can learn to recognize that feeling, oh, there it is. There it is. And then you do need to do some work and it might you might not be able to do that in that moment. We had, my wife and I had a conversation recently where I recognized it so much. It was just in my eyeballs, like up to my eyeballs, this need to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, that's not what I meant. That's not what I did. But I had the presence of mind. Just, I, I couldn't talk. I couldn't say anything because the only thing I would say would be defensiveness. And so what I did say was, I'm hearing what you're saying. I'm panicking a little bit inside right now. I want to respond to you. I will respond to you. I just don't know what to say right now. I will make it worse <laughs> if you let me, if you give me and, the space. That, and that wasn't, mm -hmm. I think Mary in her patience was probably disappointed with that response. You know, probably wanted me to break down and, well, I don't know what she wanted, but that probably wasn't what she was yearning for right there. But it's better than what could have come out and we did return to that and i did have more resources and i did understand more what was happening and it wasn't even that much longer it was that day and i was able to say now i i realize what i was doing this is not about you this is all about me mm -hmm. and, and it really was and i wasn't just saying that to i but i could say that because i had a couple of hours to go to let because part of it is letting the cortisol rise and fall you know, yeah. cause that's what's happening in me fight or flight or defend. I, I don't know. <laughs> Is that one of the responses? Well, Maybe that's fight, fight. you know? That's yeah, fight. that's fight. So anyway, thank you for bringing that up. I hopefully that little example was a helpful one. It was, I know we've been talking to the parents. I think that in our community, one of the things I know in some of our listeners, we've got people who have done the hard work of coming out to parents. And I just want to say a word to them of, Bravo, you've been very brave. Yep. And I think however your parents, however your family responded, it's not your responsibility to fix their response. It is incredibly brave that you're choosing to come into the fullness of who you are. And sometimes your family may be those people you choose during this as your family has to do their own work of coming to this. You've been carrying this inside for a really long time. And it's like, for many of them, it can be a shock. And I hope and pray there can be reconciliation coming towards that for everybody. I really do. But sometimes you need other people to embrace you as family. And I just, I just want more than anything. I don't want to leave this conversation without saying you are enough. You are good. And you don't have to be alone. I would say if you can also place that over, it's not your responsibility to change the church family and teach Absolutely. them either. So everything you just said with the church family language over that, because I see so many people striving to stay in communities where they're not accepted. 
and it's painful. It's really painful. So if you can find church family that supports you, if you want to stay in church, if you don't want to, that's okay too. But if you want to, I would encourage you to just be in community where you don't have to defend how you're made. This episode of Fun Parts was produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Braun. Our artwork was designed by the very talented Alan Lusink. All the music you heard in this episode was composed, produced, and licensed by the fine folks at blue.sessions.com. Check out our website at funpartspodcast.com and be sure to follow us on social media at funpartspodcast. Lastly, if you want access to bonus and behind-the-scenes content from this and other Milieu Media Group shows, join our neighborhood at the Patreon link in the show notes. And now, here's a scene from the next episode of Fun Parts. I have gotten in my own way a lot about judging how we arrive to sex because the expectation of how we've arrived to sex has been set by like movies and culture. You can even compare it to your early relationship when like you're both just like, woo. And I want to say that's like an expectation too. Some people that's not their story in the beginning. I think for me, one of the things I've realized too is if the way we've gotten into bed isn't like the idea I had in my mind, who cares? We're there. <laughs>